Now you follow as I read, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll read the first 14 verses of 2 Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives... And as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went Went on, fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, the chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them into pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Before we come to the, to the main theme of this text, the main road, uh, I'd, I'd like to take you down one side road, which I think is, is a pretty significant one indeed. Um, it has to do with something I want you to notice in the story about the desperation of Elisha. Um, now, now, don't get these two guys confused, guys. You have uh, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah came first. He was succeeded by Elisha. Um, uh, Elisha knew that he was going to be the successor. He was appointed to that office uh, back in 1 Kings 19. Um, and there seems to be one thing of which he is deeply convinced, and that is this. That um, without the spirit of Elijah, his ministry is doomed. And so you notice him in this story. He, he doesn't say something like this. He doesn't say, oh, no. What are we going to do without Elijah? He knows better than that. He knows that, um, that Elijah is just as wicked and as broken as he is. He knows that, that 
the, the courage and the wisdom and the power are things that belong to Elijah because of the Holy Spirit's presence. He knows that with the Spirit, Elijah is mighty. But without the Spirit, Elijah's ordinary. And so he prays in verse 9. He says, I want a double portion. The Hebrew is um, interesting. It's a double mouth, a double mouthful. Give me a double mouthful of the spirit that, is, that is, resides on Elijah. He knows that the, the job that he's being asked to do is one that cannot be done ultimately except by God himself. Guys, the Bible teaches that frequently. Um, for instance, in the Psalms, Psalm 127, you remember that? It's a great psalm. It starts like this. Unless the Lord builds the house... He who builds, builds in vain. It goes on, um, unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. The the point of that psalm is, whether you're going to build a city or watch a city or try to make a living, it's all going to be in vain unless the Lord comes alongside. And Elisha seems to understand that. The ones who don't understand it, it appears to me, us. The, the, um, that dependence, reliance stuff, we're not real good at that. I, I, I don't think we know how to beg. Um, and, and, and why? Uh, what are we saying? Are we, are, are, we, um, <clears throat> are we thinking that somehow we're, we're better than Elijah and thus don't need that? I know you better than that. We're, 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 we don't believe that. But guys, then help me understand why it is that we don't see the same sense of urgency. And you want to know where it shows up? It shows up in our prayer life, doesn't it? That sense that unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord raises my kids unless the Lord gives me favor in my job. It'll all be in vain. Guys, I just simply leave you with this. This, uh, Be advised that the scriptures everywhere, including this story, teaches that unless the Lord builds the house, we who try to build it, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about your house. I mean, your world. Unless the Lord builds that. We who seek to do it will do it in vain. And you see it in this sense of desperation on the part of Elisha. Now that brings us to the main main theme of the text. And the main theme of the text is really heaven. I want to look at that subject under under three headings. First of all, the the reality or the existence or the certainty of heaven. Secondly, the the difference that that reality and that that the existence of that place should make on us. And then thirdly, how do you get there? So, first, take a look at just the reality, the certainty, the the existence of this place called heaven. It's mentioned a couple of times in the text. And we're told that this, this man, whose name is Elijah, 
This prophet goes to a place called heaven. Um, <clears throat> the text says it. The story says it. But that same th- idea is affirmed in the New Testament, guys. You, um, do you remember the story of the transfiguration in Matthew 17? You remember that? When Jesus was transfigured and he was visited by two people who had come from heaven? Remember who they were? One was Moses. The other was Elijah. And so, what I, what I would have you to note is that here in this, this section of the Old Testament, where the, where the theme of this section of the Old Testament is this running battle between the true God and the false gods, between Yahweh and idolatry, tucked very neatly inside of this section about <clears throat> true God and false God, is a brief reminder that heaven awaits, that heaven is real, that heaven exists, and that heaven is the destination of God's people. And I um, I would <laughs> suggest that though your exit may not be quite as dramatic as Elijah's, if you are here this morning in Christ, your destination will be the same as his. Just as surely... Just as certainly, your eternity will be spent with Elijah in a place called heaven. Now, guys, that brings me to the second point, which is really the guts of what I want to say this morning. Because knowing that that place exists, knowing in the certainty of our destination, knowing in the reality of heaven... It ought to make a real difference, a a real big difference. And it ought to make a real big difference now. Guys, I think we all know that it makes a difference later. But what I'm suggesting is that it makes a real difference now, or at least it should. So that's what I want to explain, that difference that the reality and the certainty of heaven ought to make in us now. Not not later, but now. Let me explain. Guys, you and I, we live in a fallen world and we are often faced with the the challenge of choosing uh, among the many narratives that that compete for our allegiance and, and, and seek to define us. Let me explain that sentence. Guys, here's an example of a narrative that seeks for your allegiance and tries to define you. For instance, um, am I really a grown-up germ? Um, A highly evolved animal? Um, You know, a, a, a sophisticated ape? that has climbed down from the tree, uh, put on a suit and gotten a job? Did I simply exchange my bananas for blackberries and, and, and find myself a place to, you know, make a living? Did I, um, am I simply pushed by my past, driven by mere instinct and, and, and the desire for the survival of the fittest? Guys, according to that narrative, we came from nowhere, 
and we're going nowhere. We are, um, our, our, our origins were in chaos and our, our, our end is meaningless. Do you see how that would influence the choices that you make? For instance, all this emphasis upon pleasure and uh, recreation and uh, gusto, all those words that seem to identify our age. Um, all of those things become very important because you better get all of that that you can because this is the only chance you got. Or, here's another narrative. Am I a creature made in the image of God? A, a, I bear the imago dei, ravaged by the fall indeed, but, but progressively being restored to, to the position of being a little lower than the angels with the destination of heaven. Is that who I am? Which are you? Which of those narratives define you? Because, guys, um, it's going to make a whole lot more difference than you know. And, and, and I want to try to show you the vast difference it should make. Folks, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is this wonderful statement, this mystical book about the wisdom of Solomon. There is this wonderful statement in chapter 3, verse 11, I think, that says that God has placed eternity in your heart. God has placed this nagging desire for eternity in the hearts of all of us. And because he has, all of us, um, even the ones who live in the nice houses and drive the nice cars, we are troubled from time to time with this longing that we can't explain. There is this occasional angst because we have been created for eternity. And you are hardwired for frustration with anything else than eternity. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Um, let me let me let me quote to you some of what some real smart guys say. This is from um, Gerhardus Voss. You don't know that name, but if Princeton, if you're if you're theologically trained, you know that name. It's a Princeton theologian about 100 years ago, and he said this. He said eschatology precedes soteriology. Did you get that? That's what he said, all right. But here's what he meant, folks. That is, man's desire for eternal life is resident within him and noticed by him even before he sees his need to be saved from his sin. G.K. Chesterton, he, uh, he put it this way. Man can be understood only from the vantage point of the future, often running on ahead, as it were, and then looking back. Man's future says more about him than does his past. Peter Kraft, who is somebody that I think is the smartest man alive today, he said this, Men live not just in the present, but in the future. We live by hope. Our hearts are a beat ahead of our feet. Um, and then he goes on for proof and he says this. Out of the literally millions of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not one of them. 
Not one of them was ever given a new past. <laughs> Guys, because, the, because we have the future that we have, our, inf- our, our future influences our present. We're not being pushed. We're being pulled. Our, our hope of future, our future hope, shouldn't make us passionate about living now. We, we, we dream of tomorrow. And that affects our todays. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to illustrate all that I've said with something very simple. And if you can get this... This illustration, you're going to get what I'm saying. This is a, I think it's a decent illustration, so bear with me. Imagine that there's two men. Two men who both have been given the same job. It's very tedious work. <laughs> they work 12 hours a day for six days a week. And they, um, oh, I don't know, they put a plastic cap on a widget. It's a very tedious job. But they both work in the same place, in the same environment, in the same little cubicle, same lighting, same temperature, same everything. Um, One of those men is told, at the end of the year, we're going to give you $15,000. The other man who does the same job in the same place, doing the same thing. Oh, by the way, the other fellow, he complains, he's bored, he whines, he's unproductive. But this other fellow, doing the same job, in the same place, is told that at the end of the year, you're going to be given $15 million dollars. He comes to work and he's happy, enjoys his work, doesn't complain. He kind of does his work with a, with a skip in his step. What's the difference? The difference is in how they define their future. The future, ladies and gentlemen, and the promises contained with it. Those promises ought to be affecting how we live now. The Christian's future is one that is so powerful that it ought to change everything that we do now. God's promises of heaven to his people shapes, or at least should, Present living. One of the purposes of the promises of heaven, guys, is to get us to live passionate now. Heaven awaits you. And you're going to spend a whole lot more time there than you spend here. Folks, if someone says to you that they are perfectly happy in this world and and actually seem to be, That's evidence that something is seriously wrong. We're not completely happy here because we're not supposed to be. We'll we'll have happy moments from time to time. But certainly nothing compared to what, what awaits us. 
The blessed hope of the Christian means that we don't we know we don't expect everything to go well here. But we we do expect things to change. And that change is so glorious and so incomprehensible and so indescribable that that I can strive through this life with a with a spring in my step. Guys, this is a this life is a an unmerry merry-go-round. But not that one. Not the one that awaits you. Guys, heaven, heaven is to earth what the outside world is to the womb. Stay with me. If there is such a thing as birth, then it follows that the womb is only temporary. If there is such a thing as heaven, all of this is temporary. And that's one thing that this story does. It draws back the curtains that separate heaven and earth and reminds us that heaven awaits. Life here is just a dress rehearsal for the really big production. This is just a warm-up lap. C.S. Lewis once said that all that is not eternal is eternally useless. Thorns grow here, but they don't there. That will be, or there, you'll find the end of oppression and disease and death and, and injustice and poverty It's the end of my sin against you and your sin against me. You know, guys, um, earlier, Elijah, back in chapter 19, Elijah had prayed to die. And, And God refused to give him that request because he had something far better planned for him. He does for you too. And, um... If, if you find yourself overcome with sorrow now, part of the reason is that you have, you have forgotten what's awaiting you at the end of this life. You've forgotten what you've been promised. You haven't been promised 15,000. You've been promised 15 million. And whatever it is that God has planned for his people, It's going to make life here seem like one bad night, one night in a bad hotel. (laughs) To quote Tolkien, Tolkien said, everything wrong is going to be put right. But, um, guys, the thing that I want you to hear, the thing that I want you to get, is that your definition of your future ought to affect you now. Tell me, who is more likely to quit smoking? Um, The pregnant mother who is going to abort her child or the pregnant mother who is going to give life to her child? You see, I think the answer should be pretty obvious to that. Folks, mothers clean up their lives 
in terms of what they eat. Because they've got a promise about something that's going to occur nine months into the future. Something's going to happen to you off in your future. And it is so good, so glorious, so indescribable that it ought to make us different people now. You know, guys, the roads that actually go someplace are usually better maintained than the the ones that are dead-end roads. We're on a road that goes someplace. And so there ought to be a... There ought to be a motive in us that makes us live more purposefully, more obediently, more elegantly. Because of the nature of the promise of your destination. Now, I gotta hurry. How do you get there? You know, back in um, James chapter 5, James 5 says, makes this little comment about Elijah. It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like us. Elijah was a man. He wasn't an angel. He was flawed. He was broken. But he's in heaven. How did he get there? Um, how did that happen? Well, um, was it his faithfulness to God? Oh, guys, you've got to be kidding. He's the one that prayed to die. Was it uh, the suffering that he endured, perhaps? There's nothing redemptive about suffering. Maybe it was his zeal because he was an awfully sincere man. No, ladies and gentlemen, he's the one that ran from Jezebel like a scared puppy. But if you want to know how, why it is that Elijah's in heaven, the answer is in the New Testament. If you'd like to see it, it's in Luke 9. I just want to, it's, it's in that transfiguration story. <clears throat> let me let me just read you. This is verses 31, 30 and 31. Um, and behold, two men were talking with him, talking to Jesus. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. You get that? Moses and Elijah appear with before the transfigured Jesus and they have a chat. They have a conversation. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about his departure. The Greek word is exodos, his exit, his, 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 his death that he is going to accomplish. In fact, in verse 31, it even calls it an accomplishment. Guys, Moses and Elijah are there talking to Jesus and are very thrilled and excited to talk to Jesus about what he is about to accomplish. Do you know how Elijah got to heaven, ladies and gentlemen? He got there just like every other Old Testament saint. He got there because he looked forward to what Jesus would accomplish. While we New Testament Christians look back to what Jesus accomplished. And we trust in that. And we trust in that alone. Guys, Elijah got to heaven the same way you and I do. By trusting in Christ and his finished work, 
Christ has taken away from me all curse. He was the judge who was judged. My judgment is in the past. I was saved 2,000 years ago. That's over. Heaven awaits us. And that ought to make a difference. I read a story once about a guy by the name of Christmas Evans. His first name was Christmas. I like the name. Christmas Evans was his name. He was a, he was a Welsh evangelist. and He died in 1838. And on the day that he died, he was lying on his deathbed. And his friends had, and relatives had gathered around and just to be with him as he died. And right before he died, he opened his eyes and he looked at the, the people around his bed. And he, and he waved at them. And he said, drive on. Elijah said something like that too. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that there is a destination that awaits them. A destination that is um, not to be compared to what we experience here and now. I pray that you will remind them, O God, that that what you have um, committed to your people is a destination that is indescribable and that that might influence the way that we behave when we realize what it is that awaits us. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met Christ, who have not yet seen their need for a Savior, would you open their eyes so that they, such that they might see him in all of his beauty? Would you prompt them to see that you have made great commitments to those who trust savingly in your Son? We ask this, of course, in Jesus' name.